Hey, I'm Laurie. Hi, I'm Phil. Welcome to episode eight of Flicks and Film. Uh, today's going to be a slightly different show than usual. I feel like last week we went overload on content, Phil. We covered a whole load of a load of things, but this one's going to be a little bit more scattershot. Is that a good thing? Well, uh, well we'll wait and see. I'm going to say yes. Well, good. You've actually seen something proper, haven't you? I have seen something proper. I have uh, caught up. Uh, this is the second time I've actually watched it. It's The Trial of the Chicago 7, uh, Aaron Sorkin, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, True Story, nominated for many, many Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Performer, uh, Actor, wow. whatever the term is. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm going to talk about it uh, in light of its recent nomination. I think it's back in the news. So I'm going to talk about it. Very good. And, uh, you know, this is we had an email last week, Nicholas, who said, have we seen any of the films up for awards? And the answer back then was no. Well done, Phil catching up i'm sure in short order we'll get to midnight sky and some of the others as well uh, but in the meantime i've been watching goldeneye from the 90s phil have you heard of that film goldeneye uh, it's with got a very um, famous character with alan cummings yeah as boris That's right alan yeah. cummings and james you know oh, it's a stupid joke james it's obviously james bond but i specifically want to talk about it because i watched it on blu-ray and there are a couple of things about the blu-ray experience i really want to flag up including a behind-the-scenes featurette on director Martin Campbell, which I think is a great advert for why they don't really do that anymore uh, in uh, films and why the kind of special features are dropping off the radar of the uh, overall entertainment experience. And then depending on how time goes, I might see if we can squeeze in a what's rap this week. Phil's eyes and soul died a little bit when I suggested we do that again. (laughs) Uh, And I've got a must-seen or a picture-perfect. What do we call it in the end? Frame uh, frame. Must, must seen. <laughs> I think must seen was the one which we've la- latched onto most. Of, most I like must seen. Overall, it's the sort of moments in movies where you think everything is just right. Um, actually, it's picture perfect or must seen. It works either one. Um, it's the, yeah. the moments in films where everything's just just right. And there's something about that one scene in a movie that is just a little bit je ne sais quoi. Yeah. Mm, bonjour. Really special. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've got two waiting on uh, on the list to, to tell you about. One of them's from Totoro, the Ghibli film. And the other is from Star Wars A New Hope, another little film you might not have heard of before. I think I'll do Star Wars today. And it's about, uh, my tease for you is it's a scene that I don't think I've heard anyone go into much detail about before. Um, and I was just watching it with my kids the other day. I was just struck by it from a storytelling storytelling, uh, <laughs> storytelling perspective. So we'll see how we get on with all that. And I'm sure there'll be other bits and bobs in between. You ready um, to go, Phil? Well, just to round it out, I've got a little something about a quiz show and a little something about a TV show that you can watch. Like I said, it's a bit of scattershot. I've got uh, some actual bonus content this week as well um, about apps. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? Tease, tease, <laughs> tease. Let's get into the actual main course. Off we trot. Okay, so I don't think we can really start with Goldeneye as uh, much as I would like to. I think we need to go with the Chicago 7. And I'm going to be honest with you, Phil, besides the name and an awareness that it is talked about and relating to something in real life, I know basically nothing about it. Please enlighten me. So this is uh, a sort of Vietnam... A movie based on a true story written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Aaron Sorkin. And it's about the trial of seven individuals. Actually, it more ends up being like eight individuals who were all protesting the Vietnam War at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Um, It talks about that moment. It has flashbacks to that moment, but it mostly is about the trial where they were tried as a group in front of a judge and the... The, the attempt to try and make this into a political show trial versus an actual trial. Basically, it's can they actually be prosecuted 
for what they for starting a riot basically there was a big clash between police and protesters are these people accountable are they the ones who uh, caused this riot is it all just about the behind the scenes politics and these people are being made an example of uh, are they going to be defending themselves or trying to protest the vietnam war within the trial it's all that sort of stuff Interesting business. Well, is it trailer time? And I see already with the trailer ready to go that it's a Netflix production. It is a Netflix production and an Oscar nominee. So let's play the trailer. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now, but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. Well, they're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freund, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. <laughs> My trial's begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected. Jurors 6 and 11, they're with us. Juror number 6 and juror number 11, you're dismissed from this jury. Can you tell us why? Because this is my courtroom. We've dealt with jury tampering, wiretapping, a defendant that was literally gagged. Get your hands off me! the first to suggest that I have discriminated against a black man. Then let the record show that I'm the second. When we walked in here this morning, they were chanting that the whole world is watching. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. The last summer, why did you come to the convention? To end the war. We're giving them exactly what they want, a stage and an audience. Yeah, you really think there's going to be a big audience? Here I am! This is what revolution looks like, real revolution. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Is this prosecution politically motivated? I'm tired of hearing you. It would be impossible for me to care any less what you are tired of. Here I am! There will be more! We have to find some courage now. How much is it worth to you? What's your price? To call off the revolution? My life. A lot of fake accents in that trailer, aren't there, for sure? Yeah, Eddie gonna, Redmayne. Uh, I'm gonna what come, a shocker that was. I'm going to come on to that. I really um, like the beginning of that trailer and Eddie Redmayne's uh, little comment as Tom Hayden um, mm. saying, we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but blah, 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 blah. There's something about it. He's so <laughs> just not being Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> Empty chairs on empty tables. Exactly like. what I was going to do. How can you not do that? <laughs> He's just that guy, Marius. Yeah, He's exactly. so earnest and his face moves so much. Very, very intense. Well, I was going to come on to uh, Eddie Redmayne uh, and say that I think he is a a standout one in a um, a bigger uh, kind of lots of famous faces 
but not necessarily the top top people you'd expect lots of actors you're like oh i know him from that thing and that thing um so you've got eddie redmayne as tom hayden you've got uh, sasha baron cohen as abby hoffman they're kind of the linchpin of the two main people um but then you've also got mark rylance as the lawyer representing them all you've got joseph gordon levitt as the prosecutor and then you've got frank langella as uh, judge julius hoffman michael keaton as well turns out yeah he's, he's there big. a little bit there's lots of big names in this uh, production and aaron sorkin's the sort of person who you kind of think has uh, built up that reputation where the, it brings these big name actors because he gives them such fantastic words to say. Um, he's directing this time and I think uh, he does nearly a good job. I think it's... it's <laughs> I was going to ask about this. It's a funny film because I think it's an interesting story because I didn't really know anything about any of these characters. I'm not American. Um, I don't... I don't know all of the ins and outs of the history of this, but I think it's an interesting incident. In- incident? Incident. But it builds up all this expectation because you know Aaron Sorkin. He built his sort of bread and butter on courtroom trial movies. All uh, A Few Good Men is kind of the famous big launching point for his whole career. And um, I think he's more known for the West Wing now, though. Isn't yeah, he? but totally. But he, but that that initial thing, courtroom drama, that's one of the best courtroom um, scenes in movies, mm. isn't it? I want the truth. Mm. Um, and so you're kind of building this whole expectation. There's all these famous actors. It's a true story. It's about the Vietnam War, about protests, and about government versus all sorts. There's so many, so much stuff in here that you could latch your teeth onto. And yet you kind of feel like you don't really ever know what this film's about. Is it about okay. the individuals and what what it is to protest? And is it about the 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 ridiculous nature of the law versus the pe- the people? It's sort of a bit of everything. And it's sort of a mess, I think. And so I'm struggling to really define exactly what I think of this film because it was a mess that I enjoyed. I think that's my main sort of takeaway from this film it's enjoyable mess okay. um but i've i'm absolutely flabbergasted that uh, sasha baron cohen has been nominated for best leading actor because oh, really? i think him as abby hoffman he cannot even do the accent he can't he spends so much time i feel like I, as i was watching him being this abby hoffman character who's a stand-up comedian who was very much a, a very visible member of the protest um he he can't he can't do the accent justice so his annoying actual accent slips through and it it kind of completely destroys his whole performance his whole persona um i didn't find him funny in any way and he occupies this space of this this movie as this ridiculous person who doesn't care about any law or sanctions against him he's going to make a mockery of everything but honestly the jokes that he has it, his character has in the film just fall flat as a pancake do you happen to know whether they are um, legit, like, what's the one I'm looking for? Jokes that the stand-up actually made in real life, or are they Aaron Sorkin gags? I don't know. I imagine there probably was um, some truth to it. So um, the the judge who is tr- uh, sort of leading the case has the same surname as Abby Hoffman. It's Judge Judge Hoffman, and they make a big joke about how they're not... He's saying, I'm not your son, but let the record show that we're not related and everything like that. But at one point, their big kind of, haha, we'll make a mockery of this trial, is they come dressed in judges' outfits and then they take, they're told to take it off and they do. And then underneath, they're wearing police officer outfits. And you're kind of like, what is this? Is this like Scooby Doo comedy? I I don't really get it. And it doesn't really land as something really snappy or clever. But he is given the role of being the heart of the movie, as in he is the voice of the people and represents moral goodness against Tom Hayden, who's this very bright, 
Um, this is Eddie, uh, Eddie Redmayne's character. He's this very bright, slightly more academic college kid protesting, but wanting to do it by the rules. They're the sort of two warring sides, the sort of ridiculous versus the serious. Um, but it's all against this trial. And this trial is um, uh, led by this judge, played by Frank Langella. And it is like watching a trial being led by uh, Dolores Umbridge or something like that. You know, that's right, yeah. super irritating. Yeah. Like, this is so ridiculously unfair and it's so blatant, your double standards, your ridiculous racism or prejudice. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you just think this is, it just irritates you. It's not fun. It's like irritating to watch as a viewer. Um, and it doesn't make you go, <gasps> it instead just makes, this is so ridiculous. Like how on earth is this possible? And I kind of think is the film trying to make you realize how ridiculous this situation is that they were in. But it kind of just becomes tedious as the, the lawyers aren't listened to. Um, their arguments fall on deaf ears. When they make a good point, it's ignored and overruled. It just becomes quite a tedious watch that that is sort of ridiculous so that you know phil i mean i, I have to be honest my my immediate question is given the climate of the world at the moment where protests are happening a lot and given the fact that we're in a sort of pandemic all over the world they're often a massive focal point of the news as well so everyone is aware of protests going on for all kinds of different reasons big one in the uk what last week in bristol mm, or something yeah. I, I don't know much about it like it's, it seems to be happening all the time and then aaron sorkin both wrote and directed this I'm kind of thinking, well, number one, that says to me, there's not a lot of challenge in that, is there? There's not a lot of people coming in and telling him to do it differently mm. or to, you know, just provide the kind of needed conflict in script and narrative development. Plus, you've got a world right now that has very strong feelings about the right to protest and what it can achieve, um, as well as incumbent governments and stuff. Is this just, you know, as I think I said before about um, Bridgerton setting up slam dunks, and scoring them every time and therefore actually it's not that much fun to watch because it's just it's more like watching the Harlem Globetrotters destroy um a team that's rubbish do you know what I mean but it, it's like it's fun watching, but not for two hours it's like watching the Harlem Globetrotters trotters shoot granny style into the net you know like underarm okay like that even the slam dunks I think you make a very valid point and I think there probably is something to that but even the slam dunks are like lame slam dunks. They're not real slam dunks. Well, because it's too easy. There's no resistance. It's, a, it's not impressive because but anyone could score. Having yeah, said that, okay. this was written a couple of years ago, long before um, uh, any of the current political climate. It just so happens oh, to be released. that's not long before any of the current political climate. I think, I think before the pandemic. Well, no, no, not, no, no, no. It might even be climate. more than two years. It might even be ages ago and he just hasn't been able to get okay. the finances. Steven Spielberg was at one point attached to direct and then it didn't happen. And then um, Aaron Sorkin did Molly's Game, which kind of I had Horse, issues which you with. did not like I yeah. think I wanted to like it and again it, I think that's very similar to how I feel about this film there's things that are enjoyable there's characters which are interesting there's dialogue which is snappy and quite an interesting connected um, group of people and yet I kind of left Molly's game and this film kind of thinking what am I meant to take away from this what's the kind of okay. thrust of it so yeah I'm, I'm curious to see what will happen on um, awards night on uh, the Oscars night whether or not it will take home any uh, gongs statues statues um, but uh, yeah I, I found it an enjoyable mess uh, so that's my verdict I would be curious to see what you thought of it Laurie um, available I mean, on Netflix well, right now the thing is I'm not actually very interested in it, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> kind of because of everything that you've said already and my impression from the trailer, there's the one scene where Joseph Gordon-Levitt is talking to someone else on the prosecution team and he says, oh, we're giving them what they want, platform or whatever it is. And I just think, well, now I know what the whole film is. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that's not a new thing to say. 
I, it bothers me. I, you don't want to watch a film where you know everything that's going to happen. And that sounds very, uh, what's the word, <laughs> patronising of me. I don't mean it to be patronising, but it, it sounds like that is what the film is. No surprises. I think there are surprises in the actual true story aspect, but I think it's disappointing. And um, yeah, Mark Rylance, who you're a big fan of, I'm not a fan of him. He's a good actor. He's nah, definitely a good actor in the right role. Yeah, nah, he's sometimes. He's, I think he's overcast. Yeah. Like, yeah, he, just he went from nothing Rylance to like everything. Magic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I was disappointed by him in this as well. I don't. I'm not. I'm yet to see something where I thought he's really, really impressed me. So I don't really get the okay. hype. So there you go. That's uh, Trial of Chicago 7. Do let us know if you have any thoughts on it. Do you agree with me? You can give me a plus one. If you disagree, you can give me a minus one. Uh, send in your thoughts. Uh, flicksandfilm at gmail.com or at flicksandfilm. Victor At flicksandfilm. Victor I would just like to add <laughs> how apparently completely and utterly wrong I am because it seems as though uh, this was being written in 2006 um, and originally, as you say, with Steven Spielberg. Um, and Aaron Sorkin were chatting about it. And then even Paul Greengrass apparently was attached in 2013. So it's had a long old production It's cycle. been on the shelf for a long time and now seems to be the right time. And it's hit off chord, it would seem, with some. Uh, Struck a chord. All right, well said. Okay, to be honest, sounds like one you might want to avoid. But there it is. It's all up for the Oscar season. No, it's, it's kind of enjoyable mess. Watch it if you want some enjoyable mess. That's what I'll say. Laurie's mm. <laughs> <laughs> not convinced. There you go. Phil, having um, been supercilious and very scorn-like, uh, pouring poo-poo <laughs> on uh, uh, Chicago 7, which I haven't seen, based on your you know, review of it, it must be said, I'm going to be really positive now, overwhelmingly positive. I'm going to do must-seen, I think, or picture-perfect. Do we have a jingle for this in the old days or not? I don't know. You're the jingle man. You, do you want to make picture a jingle right now? Perfect. I'm doing it like, you know, the opening to The Simpsons kind yeah. of thing. Uh, right. Well, I want to talk to you about Star Wars 4 A New Hope, a little film by uh, an author called George Lucas. Now, you've probably seen this film. There's one scene I really want to draw your attention to that I bet you won't guess what it is. I bet you've never stopped and thought a lot about it. Um, Phil, do you, do you want to have a guess with that in mind, knowing Star Wars as you do? Try and guess the scene. I want to prove my point. Can you li limit it down? Is it the scene where Anakin and Padme flirt and he uh, forces No, no, a Star pair. Wars 4, A New Hope, oh, okay. A New Hope, Phil. Okay. The original Star Wars. I do love that scene, though, the CGI pair that she stabs a fork into. Oh, Very good. All-time magic. Uh, movie magic. No, uh, in the original one, I'm going to say, is it the Jawa saying, Zutini? Uh, no, oh, I do no, love that scene as well. You're in the right part of the uh, right part of the film, though. It's you know in the first third, whatever. Is it, is it in the uh, desert planet of uh, Mos Eisley? Uh, Tatooine, yes, not Mos Eisley. One more guess. Think of another scene. Uh, I think it accomplishes a lot in the story. Is it, it introduces Luke, come and get your characters and elements? <laughs> if only it was. That's fantastic as well. No, but very, very near to that. I want to talk to you about the moment where Luke and Uncle Owen buy the droids. They buy C-3PO and R2-D2 from the Jawas. I was just watching this uh, scene. And I think, Phil, if you've ever wanted to write a screenplay, and I know that you have and, in fact, have done so before, um, I think this is a bit of a masterclass, but I'm ready to be told that I'm wrong about this. So I do want your opinions on this, yours, Phil, but also anyone listening. But I think it's really kind of genius film writing. And this is why I think you won't really have thought about it before as a scene that stands out. It is the introduction of Luke Skywalker. This is the first time that you see him uh, in the whole trilogy. And, you know, you have the French horn playing the theme and he runs in and says what, uh, uh, tell him if he gets a droid, it speaks Bachi. 
Doesn't look like we have much of a choice, but I'll remind him. What do you think of the impression? Pretty good one? Good, good. Also, also includes the, uh, I was going to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters line. Also an absolute classic. But it's transitional, isn't it? Nothing really happens. It's just a scene that kind of sets things up and you blow past it because you need to get to the action and the plot and everything that's happening because you haven't even seen the vision from Princess Leia yet, the, mm. the recording. So they, they go off. But if you think about all the things that happen, I want to tell you about the things that happen and then the themes that it introduces. And this is why I think it's absolutely genius. Um, so the first thing uh, is that the droids are lined up, aren't they? And C-3PO and R2-D2 are actually kind of split up they immediately buy C-3PO because he fills the role that they need. But they don't immediately buy R2-D2, do they? They try and buy that other red droid. Um, oh, and the red droid. Yeah, that's right. It has a bad motorway. Look, and it blows up. And then C-3PO recommends R2-D2. And they say, what about that one? Okay, yeah, we'll take that one. And then R2-D2 comes along. Then, you know, they take the droids away and all that sort of stuff. Now, if you think about all the things that are set in motion with that scene, it's everything, isn't it? It's absolutely mm. everything. It draws together the fact that C-3PO and R2-D2 narrowly escaped, got to a desert planet, and were captured by Jawas separately, I might add, brought together at this point, then were nearly separated again, but finally brought together so that R2-D2 can play the vision or the message to Luke, so that Luke um, goes to Obi-Wan Kenobi, discovers his heritage in the Force, and all this stuff, and all of Star Wars basically happens. So what it draws together is the theme of fate. And actually, you don't think about it that way. But you just sort of accept it as a coincidence. But actually, it's much more than that, isn't it? There are so many moments up to that point in the film at which the plot might not have happened that it's almost, I think, it's intentional. It's intentionally saying forces are at work to make this happen, ultimately really spelled out with the red droid blowing up. So number one, here's a much deeper theme. We've not even been introduced to the force yet, but here it is in action. There is something happening here that is making the droids stick together. So C-3PO and R2-D2 aren't split up. It also tells you a lot about the character of C-3PO, R2-D2 and Luke Skywalker all in one go because C-3PO has spent the whole opening of the film insulting R2-D2 and being mean. <laughs> That's a good point. Then yeah. on, the, on the sand crawler, he's delighted to see him again and he doesn't sort of give away that he wants R2-D2 to stay with him and not to be split up. But the minute he gets an opportunity, he does say, what about R2-D2? Excuse me, sir, but that R2 unit is in prime condition. A real bargain. Uncle Owen? Yeah? What about that one? And it says a lot that C-3PO is both withdrawn and reserved, but also considers R2-D2 a friend. Uh, there's That's that going on. That's probably the only and moment where um, C-3PO shows a bit of initiative and uh, cleverness, actual cleverness. Well, exactly. In fact, in fact the entire the plot of the film hinges on C-3PO saying... Let me recommend this droid to you. He's, you know, he's very reliable and all this sort of stuff. It's the <laughs> nicest he ever is to R2-D2. That's very true. And, and that achieves a lot about their relationship and their place within the sort of story. And, of course, it shows us Luke Skywalker, um, who has clearly got a lot of life and spark about him, very fresh-faced, but is also already introduced as being dissatisfied with his life because his uncle is telling him, what is it he says... Uh, go and get these droids cleaned up and then whatever it is. And he says, oh, but I was going to the Toshi Station, blah, blah, blah. Take these two over to the garage, will you? I want them cleaned up for dinner. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. Now, come on, get to it. All right, come on. It sets up the entire character and relationship dynamic and context of Luke's life in one tiny very mocked exchange because of the way that it's delivered. But can you see how much it achieves at that point? It is very efficient. Yeah, I give you this. But I think thematically, as well as plot points, characters, 
everything's in there and Luke's kind of like, oh, frustration about the droids is really, really evident. And then, of course, the plot moves on at pace from that point. But I just, I just want to sort of pay tribute to how effective that scene is, plus one of the most understated and beautiful introductions uh, to a character theme and a character full stop, I think, there is in cinema. I call that iconic because it's so understated, given the effect, you know, the impact that Luke Skywalker's character has on the galaxy at large in the Star Wars universe. What does he do? He just comes up to do a job and to help his uncle choose some droids. And there's that little French horn motif. I think the whole thing is just beautiful. And it's not often so many goals are achieved in one particular scene. Any thoughts? Am I overdoing it, Phil, or what? No, I think you've made a very, very succinct and clear case for a must scene and a picture perfect all in one. Thanks for agreeing with me. <laughs> I do agree with you. Plus one to Laurie. If you agree with Laurie, do <laughs> give him a plus one or a minus one if you think, what is Laurie talking about? What pretentious dribble? Fate? Droids? Hey, Ugh. Excuse me. How I'm just expressing rude. how some of our listeners might be feeling. So if you're one of those listeners, <laughs> do get in touch uh, at Flix and Film at Twitter and the email address. You probably know it by now. What's your feeling on Formula One? What do you think about Formula One? Do you know what? I was actually thinking about Formula One this morning because I was listening to an advert on the radio show I was listening to about electric cars and how beautiful the silence is of an electric car. And I was thinking, you know what? I bet there are some areas of life where the silence of an electric engine um, might be a disadvantage. And I instantly was doing sketches in my head of the Fast and the Furious where they rev the engine and it just goes... Or like drag races, which are just like, <laughs> like the noise remote control cars. I can so I imagine thinking... them hitting the pedal and just be like doing that sort of grease lightly grimace, but there's no sound. Yeah, exactly. I think that'd be brilliant. No smoke either. I and, feel like uh, there's a YouTube it's, video It's more that. like, hey, how, check out how fast this guy ran down the battery. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was thinking all the way through to Formula One and like, would the iconic noise be the same if uh, it was all electric engines? Would you have a... I can't do it, but you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly uh, what you mean. That that's also sort of be <laughs> just like a little track. fly going past. Um, yeah, what would it be? I've been listening to uh, a lot of that Formula One sound, the big engines, the yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. And I've been, I have to say, if you asked me maybe a week ago what I thought of Formula One, I'd have said I don't really get it. I, I, whenever mm. I watch it on TV, it seems to last forever. I don't know what's going on, and uh, the cars never look like they're going that fast. So I don't really get what the excitement is. But yeah, there's something funny about that, isn't there? The relative speed just doesn't hit you in the same way as if you were standing in the middle of the track. But, 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 may I recommend to you Formula One Drive to Survive? It's a Netflix series that has been released annually. Uh, and the newest one has just been released, season three. I have catched, mm. uh, I thought I'd give it a go because everyone was talking about it. I went back to season one and I'm, I'm, do you know what? I'm genuinely quite excited for the Formula One season. And I think I'm going to watch it oh, and really? try and catch it and follow it because I cannot convey how well this show gets you wrapped up into the the sport of formula one it's a docuseries which i think has been heavily influenced by senna if you remember that film oh um, yeah yeah Art good, and senna. really good um and it uses a lot of the same ways of conveying um information about drivers about the team to tell basically the story of a season of formula one and they've just told they've just released season three which tells the story of last year uh, and 2020 um but I'm assuming there's going to be another one in season. Season four is going to be telling this year's Formula One that's going to about to start right now. 
it's such a good way of getting into a sport. I, I honestly cannot recommend it enough. If you've ever been at all like, what is the fuss with Formula One? Seriously, watch this show, because even if you don't care about Formula One, you don't know anything about it. Just by watching this, you pick up all of the drama, all of the characters that are going on. And you get what I genuinely can. I, I, I was so excited watching the races because the way they use the cameras that are on the car, they've got ones behind the driver's helmet. They've got one right on the wings mm. at the front. They've got some on the floor. These cars look fantastically fast and it's genuinely terrifying what these drivers do. And I think I was just thinking back to those w- weird Sundays where you sort of turn the TV on and hoping to find something good and all that's on is Formula One. You're yeah. Like, yeah. This is so boring. 50 laps to go. Ugh, like the, the worst thing ever. It's like ruined your Sunday. And this does the opposite. It makes it so exciting, so dangerous. And so it's such a good introduction for the person who knows nothing about Formula One that I, I cannot recommend it enough that you should check it out. I almost want to play That's a trailer and I feel like I've just waxed lyrical about it without playing any trailer. So maybe we could do a little bit of a breather and play some of uh, Formula One Drive to Survive. 30 seconds, 30 seconds. These guys have an almost fighter pilot mentality. And that's what separates them from mere mortals. All I ever do is pray for a safe race. I never thought that I'd be there one day watching my son. For me, it's heart attack after heart attack. Are you okay, Nico? Get me out, there's fire, there's fire. Love the danger, that adrenaline and that excitement. They have crashed! They've gone into each other! Ah, what a... I'll do anything I can to get the best results possible. I'm not worried about dying. Well, I, wow. I mean, they're definitely going. I, it's a shame you can't see the visuals. I quite recommend you look that up um, on the internet if you're interested. But they're definitely going for the the death and danger aspect of Formula One rather than the stats and the uh, the team play. Like, oh, he's in thirty eighth again, and uh, last season it was it was fortieth. So it's a really impressive turn up for the books for that team and and the engines. And oh, let's hope they tighten up the gasket. So just remember that is the that's the the trailer. So they're trying to ham, ham like to make the drama really life and death. But you yeah. do you will care about um, uh, Danny Ricardo ending up in P11. You will care about that Max Verstappen bumping into Leclerc. So I know all these names that I didn't know at all, and now I'm super interested. And I'm like, oh, you can't you know Haas really need to turn around and make sure they get yeah, a podium yeah, finish yeah. this year, or else uh, Gunther, the team leader, is going to be out because Gene Wilder, whatever the name of the owner is, it doesn't want to do not it. Actually, Gene Wilder. No, it's Gene but somebody. The thing is, I am convinced already, to be honest, because uh, interestingly that. He made it clear that it's the producer of Amy and Senna. I can't remember who that guy is, but the documentary sort of wizard um, who really succeeds a lot. Mm. Um, and obviously in making Senna, he must have thought, wow, there's a lot more to be told in this world. And one of our good friends is a massive Formula One fan. I've had quite a lot of conversations with him about it. And the impression I get is that just like football, actually, uh, the routine is really the drama, isn't it? It's the personality. Storylines, man. Um, Storylines. You need exactly. to know it. So I am convinced that once you start knowing who the key players are, 
it's not really about the sport anymore so much as how those people are performing within the sport, right? And the totally, teams. Totally, totally. And I've been so obsessed with this that my wife Ellie just like rolls her eyes at it because <laughs> I just keep on talking about it and talking about how good it is. And the races genuinely are exhilarating. My heart Nail pumps biting. watching right. these guys. And it's just, it makes you care about the characters and introduce them. It's made me think, I remember ages ago, I wasn't that interested in sport and I didn't really like football even. And then you said, oh, yeah. why don't you play fantasy football? It'll get you yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah. And this is, a, I want, I'm so excited about this because I think any way you can kind of access the the things that are over there that everyone else seems to enjoy but you don't get any way that you can sort of tap in an easy way to kind of get what's going on even if then you decide not for me at least you can actually know what all the fuss is about and i think if you want to know anything about formula one if you want to see maybe get a glimpse of what it is that people care about this is the way to do it well said phil i'm pretty convinced all right give it a go and let us know your thoughts you know sports um stuff isn't yeah, normally a topic for us, is it, on the, this kind of podcast? But I have to say, the older I get, Phil, the more I enjoy spectator sport. I, I don't know what it is about it. There's something about it that just seems kind of nice and straightforward. What are you doing, man? You're doing like a... What was that? Were you doing an impression of something? There's a fly, sorry. Oh, was a fly. <laughs> right. I was trying to grab it. I really thought you were making some weird gesture about what I was saying. No, sorry. Um, no, the... Um, yeah, it, it seems to be quite a straightforward thing that you can enjoy. What is it? It makes you think of that vine. What's better than this? Just, Just guys being, being dudes. Guys, <laughs> guys being dudes. There's something about that that, uh, that hits the nail on the head. That's brilliant, isn't it? All right. Well done, Phil. So what's that again? What's it called? Formula One Drive to Survive. All three seasons just released and just in time for the Formula One season, which I'm going to start watching. I'm going to give it a go and nice see if job. I can what, catch up and see how Red Bull do and whether or not... Uh, Lewis Hamilton can get that record-breaking. Right, no, you're yeah, no, yeah, okay. no, you're just, no, just showing off. Show I know, off. I've got all this facts now. <laughs> I know stuff. I want to share it off. Share it off. Show it off. All right, well, to, to kind of round things off, and then we'll do the outro and say, ta-ta. TTFN. <laughs> I want to start again. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk about Goldeneye. So I uh, recently, I, I get this every now and again. I get this sort of wave of nostalgia. Something brings it on in the world. I don't know what. And I think, you know what? I would love to watch those old uh, Bonds that I, I watched when I was much younger. And I think just like everyone else in the world has ever said, there is something quite special about the Bond series. I think because uh, they typically are not watchable until you hit a certain age, right? Most of them are 12s, um, or at least the newer ones anyway, the Brosnan ones, which I watched the 12s. And so I had an inkling that they existed, but I wasn't allowed to watch them. So the moment when I could watch James Bond's, they entered my head as this is grown up cinema. <laughs> this is what it's all about. And much like the Matrix and Gladiator did as well yeah. when I hit the 15 benchmark. I um, matured and, and now I can drink wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I do often find my mind going back there and thinking, wow, film seemed really wonderful and the world seemed gigantic and glamorous uh, in a way that then kind of dissipates as you get older. And so it's nice to go back to it. So I went and got them, them on Blu-ray and Phil has already rolled his eyes at me about this. But for me, the bonds that sell all this are the Brosnan bonds, the Pierce Brosnan bonds, uh, starting with Goldeneye, not including Die Another Day, which is just awful, right from the get-go with Madonna. Um, but it's a terrible film, that one. But I really enjoy Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies and The World's Not Enough. So I went and got them all on Blu-ray, very reasonably priced. And I was in love with it before I even pressed play because <laughs> they've retitled the DVD options so that it's not play movie, it's initiate mission. 
which I absolutely love. It's like something you would do if you were 12. And they've done it on the official Blu-ray. How great is that? I think they know exactly who their audience is. And I was delighted that they were pandering to me in that way. And the film itself is, you know, it's still an acceptable watch. But again, like with every classic bit of cinema, it's aging terribly. I mean, people always used to say, didn't they, how is it that Bond never gets hit by a single bullet, but then he can shoot all the bad guys instantly? And that is so true. There's a particular scene in GoldenEye. I mean, everyone knows it's true, but it's really, really obviously and disappointingly true. Uh, He's in a library um, with Natalia at one point trying to escape all these troops and they're shooting he's running a, a, on a, like a metal sort of walkway a grated walkway they've they're got shooting little fireworks up going all over uh, around yeah, it's them the squibs around them are um, <laughs> so over the top and of course they don't get hit by a single thing he just runs with his pursed lips and his suit he looks cool running in a suit no question <laughs> um, and then he just spins around and shoots and they instantly die it, was, it is a joke but almost I think to the point where it must know that it's a joke and then of course he jumps out the window and drives a tank around destroying massive parts of the city in a very, utterly, very utterly. covert. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. But what other, fil- are there any other films that really do that? I feel like the new bonds explicitly do not do that. And it's why I don't really rate them in the same way. There was a really showy, pointless brassiness to the Brosnan era bonds and much of cinema at the time that hasn't really been replicated. And I don't think there's any desire to replicate anymore. Plus, I just think Pierce Brosnan, what a screen presence. I mean, <laughs> tell me, Phil, you've got to agree. He's pretty unique on the screen, isn't he? Uh, so I, I'm going to pop your bubble. Ready? Here's my needle. It's pop. fine. You do um, it. You I, can't, I think is this is entirely nostalgia and nothing else. Yeah, I think it is. I said it was. Because if, let me ask you this. What's your opinion on Roger Moore as a Bond film? Yeah, well... I uh, bits of it I can cope, but they are old. They're old, aren't they? And, and they, they seem pass me weirdly by. cheesy and not. You don't almost yeah. like you don't get them. I think that's how I feel about Piers Brosnan, even because I'm. Are like, you serious? Though it you just actually seems feel that so way. So tacky. I quite like Goldeneye, particularly the opening with the dam and jumping off the edge and things. Brilliant stunt. And you've yeah, got fantastic. Boris, who I think is a Alan Cumming, as I mentioned in the beginning. He's kind of he interesting. Um, I think. Also, you've got the video game, which is all blended in there in my memory. Yeah, uh, as a really game. exciting video game. GoldenEye is the exception. I think it was a genuinely quite a good Bond, especially when it came out. Martin Campbell. Is it Martin Campbell? Yeah, we're going to talk about Martin Campbell yeah. in a minute. Yes, correct. Martin Campbell, I think, does a good job of like then Casino Royale, of course. Yeah, and yeah. well, so this is my feeling. I really like Casino Royale. Casino Royale is the Bond that I remember thinking, I want to watch this in the cinema. He's so and miserable. I was, so right, miserable. I was the right sort of age to watch it. And I think that's a really, really good Bond film. Um, I, I feel like Daniel Craig is my Bond because that's the that's one where right, I actually seem it? to get into it. But... I think that's the thing. Everyone's just attached to their when they're and, fifteen. Look, I'm acknowledging that. I'm it. not going to pretend otherwise because I know people have had this debate about Connery, right, versus Roger Moore, uh, as well as Roger Dalton, Timothy Dalton, <laughs> whoever it is, that guy. Um, yeah, I know. I know that's how it is, and I'm not trying to make a case of Brosnan being the best Bond, but he he certainly is the one that takes me He's back my there. Bond. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that phrase, Phil. You'll that's never hear you, it from my That's lips. what you're saying with your you words. Know, <laughs> what I want to talk about is Martin Campbell, kind of Goldeneye aside. Because they have this featurette on what it's like working with Martin Campbell. And I do recommend that you try and watch this thing. Because I, you know, despite the fact that, as we point out, he's quite a big name director in some ways. He's done, he's Vertical Limit. He's done a lot of quite high profile action, spectacular blockbuster type films. And directing a Bond is no mean feat as well. Especially one as beloved overall, anyway, as Goldeneye. But the man, (laughs) like, watching what directing looks like. It looks like being horrible to everyone all the time. 
um, but somehow getting away with it because you're that guy. You're Martin Campbell. And they said his name. I've never heard a documentary in which the name of the person being covered is said so much. Like, oh, Martin. Yeah, Martin. Martin Campbell. Like, they say it relentlessly. And it's because he has this identity. He has, he has this cachet. And that's how he's able to get away with doing what he does. There was a scene that really stood out to me where he's directing Famke Janssen, who plays the sort of evil villain woman. Uh, kind of horrible character, really. She's getting into a helicopter and it's always nice to see behind the scenes actors who are very kind of like competent and they can fly any ship when they're actually just being actors climbing into the helicopter to film the scene. Much, much less graceful than you'd expect. And it really does look like someone trying to get into a plane seat, you know, and put the bag up and the, can I, you know, moving yeah. around, trying to get a bag in the other head. To, and she's clearly struggling to get in. And then Martin Campbell, director, says, uh, Famke, honey, can you speed it up a little bit? I know you've got long legs, but come on, we need to, we need to get moving. Other than that, just brilliant, darling, fantastic, fabulous. You think, how, who is this man? Who is this person? And how is that... Uh, someone who is directing blockbusting Hollywood movies. It lifts the lid on the magical world of film in quite a depressing way, I thought. And for all he comes across as a total workaholic, waking up at four in the morning, going down and rehearsing the scenes himself, doing machine gun noises and things ahead of being, pla you know, being well organised for the actors doing this stuff. I just think those days, it makes me think, are those days gone or are they not gone? Because if they're not gone, I can't imagine that anyone would let that sort of thing slide anymore. I can't believe that directors are allowed to get away with that kind of language and that kind of patronising demeanour anymore. It just opened up a whole can of mystery worms about the realities of Hollywood that I haven't thought about in about 10 years. Well, it's funny you mention that because it immediately, it makes me think of uh, George Clooney when he's on Graham Norton once was talking about, oh, I've forgotten his name. He directed um, Batman and Robin. Um, uh, Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher talking about how he directed and uh, and he just have a massive megaphone. He's like, your parents are dead. You've got nothing to live for. It's George Kennedy tells it great. If you can find the little clip of him talking about it. Uh, there was a director named Joel Schumacher. He's a very funny man, very tall, very sort of eccentric. And he would direct with a speaker and a, uh, with a microphone and a speaker. Usually directors will come up and say, hey, uh, uh, he'll be like, OK. And you'd hear this, you know, giant <laughs> booming voice. And I bolted into this suit. I can't move. And he would literally go, and he would direct you like as if you would have some emotional scene. He would go, okay, people, all right, uh, uh, George, you know, your parents are dead. You have nothing to live for. But it is, it's, it's, it's completely ruins the mystique of the, the director sort of going over and having a quiet word with the actor and sort of saying, this is your emotions and what do you need from this scene? And let's give it one more. But with the, and it's, instead, it's just literally directing, telling people what to do, giving them directions. Yeah. And it sort of feels like, is this, is this what a director's paid to do? Just shower at people? Yes, yeah, it's shout at people, move things along, keep a really, really clean diary so that everyone knows what's happening. Anyway, I just, I realise none of this is particularly new or riveting, but it was uh, intriguing to me. But yeah, you know what, I'm going to report back because I've got Tomorrow Never Dies. I know you won't want to do this based on what you just said about Bond and the world's not enough. He's banging his head onto the microphone, guys. Uh, queued up for the Blu-ray. So I'm going to let you know what other delights I find. And it, to be honest, it did make me think, I really hope Blu-ray and that kind of physical media isn't going to die out in favour of streaming. For all the benefits... You know, we are flicks and film. We're talking about Netflix and streaming as well as film. But let's not forget the middleman um, of the home DVD stuff, because I, I do think there's still something pretty unique about that experience. I wouldn't like to see it die. 
Incidentally, I, the reason why I really can't stand Tomorrow Never Dies, I need to get out there. It's uh, is his name Jonathan Price, the the baddie. Yeah, that he's one. not good. He drives me crazy. I like who keeps on giving this guy acting roles. He's like poison to me. Literally, Marmite. What is it? He's um, the worst thing I saw him in was Pirates of the Caribbean, where he almost single handedly ruins the whole movie even though he's only got like a bit part but he, he just he's <laughs> so hammy. everything man i cannot stand he, that well, have you seen that i think the reason he gets away with it is brazil have you ever seen brazil no is that ter- what's his name terry gilliam terry gilliam yeah it's, it's a very odd film but he plays the lead in that and it's quite an iconic role which he does play quite well it's a it's not a comfortable watch i don't really like i don't actually really enjoy terry gilliam's movies i have to say as interesting as they are but i think that's why he keeps surviving basically well, well, we'll get on to it. I, if you're insisting on talking about him, I'll, I'll, I'll prepare a little. Oh, rant. you're recording this. Are we putting this in the film. Okay, I don't know. fair enough. Putting this in the film. Who do I? I'm not a director. <laughs> can you, can you just be a bit quicker and like, moving on yeah, to the next segment? Yeah, up, Phil. I mean, it's really interesting <laughs> things, but we've got to move on. So <laughs> let's go. Okay. Well, there you go. That's uh, another episode in the can, so to speak. I uh, hope you enjoyed hearing... I'm rubbish at these outro things. This is why Laurie You're does all of the, uh, the No, intros. I'm not good at Are you kidding? I'm not good at it at all. I'm laughing in sympathy because I know exactly how you feel. You've got to sort in of make it zippy and more up, isn't it? That's the sort of... We need general... to say things. All right, guys, cut. How about that? Okay. <laughs> That's the end of another great take. Yeah, great take, uh, guys. Look, great take. Let's help. Let's all break for lunch. We've had fun. Tell us your thoughts on the Chicago 7 on the Golden Knight, Star Wars, and the Formula One thing, which I've already forgotten it. Drive to Survive, is that yeah, what it's, it's called? it's on Netflix. It's the Netflix Formula One thing. It's like number one right now, so probably lots of people listening are already watching it. But if you enjoy well, that's it, great. let me know. But if you haven't watched it, I really, really recommend it. Give it a go. I'm going to try and give it a go if I can uh, find the time to do so. And let us know your thoughts. Flixandfilm at gmail.com, at Flixandfilm on Twitter. Phil and I are going to try and uh, follow up on our movie verses as well. I will try and find two and a half hours to watch The Departed. You've got a much easier job than me with uh, Infernal Affairs. Uh, I'll be interesting to see whether we change our opinions on that sort of thing. And of course, if you've seen those, you can get in touch with your thoughts too. Uh, but in the meantime, I've got a bit of a bonus, Phil. Do you want one? Yes. Well, I, I think is I, I wish I had more examples now. I wish I'd prepared better. Um, but I said it was to do with apps, didn't I? Quite right too. Mm. There's a plague, Phil. I know you're aware of the pandemic. <laughs> COVID, as we like to call it on this program. Um, but I, there's another plague which has been slowly infecting the world of SAAS, Software as a Service, slash app development. And it's the LY plague, the Lee plague. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Lee plague. Oh, I don't know. Have you not heard of Feedly, Phil? Have you not heard of Readly, Phil? Have you not heard of Remitly, Phil? No. I saw an advert for Remitly this morning. I feel much like uh, Ron Burgundy, no, Ron, who, is he, who is he playing? Mugatu in Zoolander, like I am taking crazy pills. What is happening? Who is it who is greenlighting app developments or software as service developments that end in LY? It's driving me insane. Like you're looking at me like I am mad and you haven't actually noticed this thing, which really does make me think I'm going mad. I'm going to look this up right now. I'm going to, I'm going to type in, can you hear me clack clacking on the computer? What is up with Lee name apps? Let's see if anyone else has said it. Yeah. The pitfalls of the cleverly named startup. Here we go. So this is the Atlantic agreeing with me. The latest startup boom has led to the creation of at least 161 companies that end in L-Y slash L-E-E or L-I. Uh, which is, naming consultants tell The Atlantic, 160 too many. Well, Atlantic, I agree with you. 
I don't. I I do actually feel <laughs> the hate it's so strong. consistent. It's very, very nearly sinister. What is happening and how is this being allowed to happen? It's terrible. Tell me you're not freaked out by this. I'm going to read you out uh, some of this. This is uh, oh, quite helpfully a Pinterest. Someone has set up a Pinterest board. Names that end in dash L-Y. So here we go. Edly, remitly, gladly, stand uply. What? Dinnerly, docketly, <laughs> newly, vicariously. That's a good one. Donately, embedly. Diply, Frenchly, genially, ravishly, spacely, positionally, laughly, comparably, flightly. Oh, I'm going. I'm actually going mad reading it, Phil, and I can't believe that you haven't spotted this. So there's really nothing to say if you haven't even realised it. Just, I, well, I could understand the frustration. Why are they thinking that's a good name? None of those are good names. It's all awful. Grammarly is the most obvious one, which you have certainly I have heard, heard of. Grammarly. Of. Yes. Have you not? Have you not seen? Look at Grammarly. That's it. They, they, I can't deal with it. Oh, we've got to stop talking about it. I think it must be to do with the URL, but honestly, it makes my skin curl. Skin curl? Is that even a phrase? Crawl. <laughs> it makes curls. my skin crawly. Crawly. Um, because it just, uh, the, the absolute worst of it is it speaks to a kind of weird, cutesy, oh, let's just make our thing really sweet and give it identity. There's one here called Bionically. Oh, it's, oh, no, stop, I hate stop, it stop, stop, with stop, an absolute stop. passion. These are bad names. It's, it speaks to me a lot of the uh, horrible marketing wave that Innocent Smoothies uh, introduced into the zeitgeist 20 years ago, where everything has to have a blooming personality. <laughs> There was, uh, so echoes. that's the end of today's show, and uh, thanks for <laughs> echoes thanks so of David Mitchell's rants in, in there. That was very good, Laurie. Well done. That was uh, good, pure rage. I, I, I wish I had an actual point to make, but anyway, <laughs> it's been driving me insane. And have a great week. <laughs> we'll, we'll be back next week with more upbeat insights from the world of popular entertainment. Uh, get in touch. Have a lovely time. <laughs>